0: they are also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life.
3: No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. Or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to
2: On this episode of Newt's World, I was really intrigued recently when I came across the February 7th report released by the Heritage Foundation entitled, Combating Big Tech's Totalitarianism, A Roadmap. The report makes three key points. First, the growing symbiosis between big tech and government gives these companies undue influence over America's daily lives and undermines our rights. Second, big tech has increasingly exercised pervasive control of information, and access to the digital space in ways that undermine freedom and a functioning republic. Third, it is time for aggressive reforms to ensure that Big Tech is held accountable, provide scrutiny and oversight, and constrain its ability to reshape society. Like many of you, I've seen what Big Tech has done in the last two years to silence voices they don't agree with. From President Trump being permanently banned from Twitter on January 8, 2021, to the latest efforts by Spotify employees to censor podcaster Joe Rogan for his content. Big Tech is more like a big government overlord deciding what information you are allowed to see. Here to discuss her report and talk about what needs to happen next, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Kara Frederick, Research Fellow in Technology Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Kara, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Nuke.
2: As I understand it, you worked for Facebook and helped create and lead Facebook's global security counterterrorism analysis program. And you were also the team lead for Facebook headquarters regional intelligence team in Menlo Park, California. When did you work at Facebook?
1: So, I was there in 2016 all the way through 2017. So, there when Donald Trump was elected, there was a big push at the time to look at what terrorists did on these digital platforms. So, there was a big hiring push at Facebook to sort of get people who'd spent time in the intelligence community, people who'd done actual counterterrorism work, especially in the digital space, in one of these three letter agencies, and bring them over there so we could bring that know how over to Facebook and effectively help them learn how to do this on the platform.
2: What surprised you about that experience?
1: Oh, I'd say the first thing, you know, I used to work at a place called Naval Special Warfare Development Group. So I was working at a command, you know, I'd been to Afghanistan three times. I was sort of bleeding red, white, and blue at the time. And so I got there, and I sort of expected everybody to come from that similar foundation. I was at Menlo Park headquarters in California, and I had thought that there would be at least some recognition of the uniqueness of America and its exceptionalism, and a recognition and gratitude, really, for the American system and all of these companies growing up and flourishing within our distinctly American system. But I'd say the thing that struck me the most was they just really didn't think about it. I'd say they took it for granted and there was a decided lack of gratitude there about America itself because we were a global corporation, right? We weren't necessarily an American company even though we were incorporated in Delaware. We were responsible to a global constituency and we were always trying to grow outside of America. Now Facebook, around 90% of their user base is outside of the US and Canada. So, I mean, they are thinking in terms of of a global cognition rather than a, this is America, what can we do that is in America's interest? That was the number one thing that struck me going from the Department of Defense all the way to Silicon Valley.
2: So in that sense, these are global companies that happen to have headquarters in America, but they're not American companies that have a global reach
1: that's exactly what I experienced and I think these past few years have really borne that out there's no better demonstration really of that than the new Twitter CEO who took over for Jack Dorsey who basically said "Mm, the First Amendment is not really a guiding principle for us it's not something that we're responsible to so I think that really tells you all you need to know about what's going on and, and sort of the hearts and minds of a lot of people in these companies not all of them there's some patriots but at the same time I would say the the prevailing ethos is that of a global corporation, where we are a global company.
2: Before you came to Heritage, between your time with Menlo Park, you became a fellow for the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Was that sort of comforting to get back into a place where people actually thought defense mattered and national interests mattered?
1: It really was, to be completely honest. I mean, I would go to the coffee shops in Menlo Park and Redwood City and Mountain View, and all people wanted to talk about was their product and shipping their product or getting a job at Facebook or the latest thing that they came up in terms of design. And to me, it was unfulfilling, right? There wasn't that geopolitical awareness that I had felt my entire life in DC. Heck, you know, going to Afghanistan multiple times will force it upon you if it's not top of mind. So it was comforting to really use sort of the technical proficiency I gained, not just in the Intel community, but applied to Facebook and then come back and say, hey, there's a set of emerging technologies that are really going to matter for national security going forward. And if we don't help write the rules of the road now, our enemies are just going to run roughshod over us. So thinking in those terms instead of just helping design products and tools and shipping them and iterating and designing and shipping again. I think that, to me, was really where my heart was. And it was reassuring that people still cared about the national security implications of, say, what the CCP is doing with their artificial intelligence development.
2: I want to take two detours before we get to the domestic implications. First of all, When you look back on your Afghan experiences, and then you look at how we left Afghanistan, what's your general thinking about how Afghanistan is going to evolve now? And what's your reaction, having watched the sacrifices we made, to then look at the sort of chaotic way in which we ran out of the country?
1: Sir, it was devastating. I mean, between my father, my husband, and I, we have 20 deployments between the three of us. You know, we all sort of came of age, except for my dad. That was the tail end of his career as a Marine. But we all sort of came of age in the war on terror. You know, I was in high school when we watched the towers fall. My husband, same thing. So it was just to see and to devote your best years to 20 years of just being at war and fighting and really believing in the mission at the time, you know, on a personal note just simply devastating on a policy note I mean to me this was a absolute dereliction of duty right mcmaster i remember that book used to sit on the shelf of my father's bookcase and i was always thinking never again you know this is never going to happen again because we know too much we know too much about the vietnam disaster etc but History again is repeating itself and it was a botched withdrawal. It was entirely preventable by the Biden administration and in my estimation it stomped on the sacrifices that so many people made giving their lives for and not just in a sunk cost fallacy kind of way but we had the opportunity to at least have a foothold there that China's now encroaching upon with Bagram Air Force Base, and we gave it up. So it was an unforced error in my estimation, and I would be devastated to see it repeated again.
2: Your dad was a Marine. Did he come in after Vietnam? He did. Because there are some very eerie similarities, and I do think McMaster's book on dereliction of duty has some parallels in the way in which the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense failed to really communicate clearly to President Biden the dangers he was running and the likelihood of a disaster. The other question I was going to ask you about just in general terms is, as great a threat as some of the American domestic companies are, what's your reaction to the scale of the Chinese effort in this space?
1: Oh, I'm very, very concerned. I think it starts as, you know, you have to recognize this is an adversary. You know, this is not a friendly competition whatsoever. No, when people tell us who they are, when the CCP tells us who they are, we have to believe them with their plans for basically leading the race in AI by 2030. Everything that they're saying, I think we do, to a degree, have to take it at face value. Because they, to be honest, have put their money where their mouth is in terms of their investment in artificial intelligence development. These are technologies that are going to underpin all of the warfighting technologies going forward. When you talk about drone swarms, when you talk about autonomous weapons, when you talk about even quantum computing, you know, all of these technologies China is really investing in them in a way that I don't think we've been very serious. There are people who understand the threat, but I take it very seriously. I think China, clearly we're leading it in certain areas like the design of chips and whatnot. And if you look at sort of the AI research papers have come out, you know, our quality tends to be better, but they are surging almost to parity with us. And I think that we need to be careful and look where they're investing all of their money, their personnel, their largesse. They're basically the civil-military fusion concept. So they're taking the resources and the abilities of the private sector and commandeering them for the CCP. You gotta make sure that you understand if you're working with a private company in China, you're effectively working with the CCP because they can have access to whatever they do with the national intelligence law, the national cybersecurity law, all in 2017 that were passed in China. I think they are a very worthy adversary and we have to posture accordingly.
2: So, given all that background, what brought you to Heritage?
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna be completely honest with you. The crossing of the Rubicon moment for me was in the election cycle of 2020 when big tech actively suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story coming out of the New York Post. So I was sitting there at CNAS, which is an amazing organization. They got me my start in the think tank world. I have so much respect, especially for the CEO Richard Fontaine, an old McCain guy. I mean, one of the best individuals I've ever met and he runs a great tight shop. But I sort of realized, okay, if we're working with the tech companies and they are doing this to American citizens, not allowing them to share links to this story in the Twitter direct messages, there is something very, very wrong here. And you know, maybe I gotta put my money where my mouth is and go to a place that doesn't necessarily work so closely with big tech. And I decided that I would devote the rest of my career to conservative causes that are on the side of freedom of expression and really bolstering the American citizen as sovereign and the ability of us to maintain our free republic by refining our thinking against one another. Because what we're seeing coming from big tech companies, especially as they collude with the government, it looks less and less like the America I grew up in and more and more like China's authoritarian state. And we need to nip that in the bud, arrest some of the trends that I'm seeing right now. And I decided Heritage was the best juggernaut that I could go to to actually get that message out. And I think I've been correct thus far. I think we're doing a great job so far.
2: Yeah, I think you've got a great new leader in Kevin Roberts. Oh, yeah. I think it's going to be very impressive. But Now, the Heritage Foundation has launched what they call the Conservative Oversight Project. What is that all about?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the left is really good about holding politicians, people in the public eye, accountable for some of the deleterious effects they say have been visited upon Americans. I think it's time for conservatives to get into the fight. I'm not quite involved with this project yet, but I know the people who are running it and they are lions for the cause. And they're saying, okay, if the left is going to do this, then we have to make sure that we can fight fire with fire. And we have to understand that holding politicians accountable is not just something that Democrats can do. It's something conservatives have to do, right? In terms of getting FOIA requests, Transparency, massive. You've seen the damage that FOIA requests have done to all of these teachers' union sort of teaching critical race theory rhetoric. Now, when you have an element of transparency, that whole sunlight is the best disinfectant idea, the FOIA requests have been devastating for them because it shows what's actually going on in our schools and it's been able to galvanize this grassroots movement of parents against what's going on in terms of the indoctrination of our children. So I think using some of those elements is going to be critical to what the oversight project does and just really hold the Biden administration especially accountable. For instance, you look at something like flying illegal immigrants into the country in the dead of night. The American people should understand what's happening. They should know about it. They're doing it in secret for a purpose. So I think it's things like that that we can help bring to light for the American people so that we can actually have a stake and a voice in our government and not just be shrouded in silence. When the Biden administration covers
2: our eyes. In that context, you're trying to surface things that in a sense they're trying to hide. And, you know, the left's battle cry now is that they need to police misinformation or false information, which turns out to be conservatism. From that standpoint, aren't you engaged in almost everyday swimming uphill trying to get these ideas across?
1: Oh, absolutely. And now we've been able to put studies and data to the suppression of conservative viewpoints on these big tech platforms. So it is swimming upstream in many ways. The Media Research Center recently had a study in September that said Twitter and Facebook censor Republican Congress members at a rate of 53 to one compared to Democrats. And then Facebook created two internal tools after Donald Trump won that suppress very conservative media outlets on their platform. So The reach of these outlets and their articles are not getting shared because of these internal tools that Facebook has developed. Same thing with Google. They've stifled conservative-leaning outlets like The Daily Caller, Breitbart, The Federalist, all during the 2020 election season, and Breitbart was able to say that their Google search visibility shrank by 99% in the election season of 2020 compared to the election season of 2016. So when you say swimming uphill, absolutely, that's an understatement, if anything.
2: You know, we experienced that at Gingrich 360. You see cycles where Google will come in and suddenly we're much further down the list of keywords, in order to get to our website. And it has a direct impact on how many people can find us. It's interesting to think that somewhere out there in Silicon Valley, some unknown person is making random decisions that either turn on or turn off the flow of information in ways that I think are a real threat to the country. From your perspective, what is it you think that we need to do as a matter of public policy?
1: Yeah, I think there's many ways to sort of redress what I call the imbalance between these tech companies and their users. And so... We at the Heritage Foundation, I think first and foremost, the ethos that should underpin everything we do is that we are going on offense. So we effectively are going to war against big tech, and we've developed a roadmap to what that looks like. And you talk about the policy options, so I can run through some of those, but there's also other elements here too. There's state legislatures, state attorney generals. There's grassroots citizenry. There's tech founders who maybe haven't yet started tinkering in their garages. But I think we need to sort of look at it as a myriad of tactics. We need to diversify our tactics with policy just being one element. But concerning policy, because we're in Washington, D.C., and that's the water that we swim in now, I think Congress and relevant federal agencies, I think they should enforce antitrust laws and reform them where necessary. I think they should scrutinize big tech's business models so really get at the heart of what allows these companies to manipulate and take advantage of Americans, their ad tech models. We need to find ways to hold tech executives liable for real fraud and breach of contract. You saw with the GoFundMe issue over the Canadian trucker money, they were going to not disseminate $9 million that had been donated to GoFundMe accounts for the trucker convoy. And when people started saying, wait, you're saying you're going to disseminate them to charities? of your choice instead of giving it to who we thought we were donating it for, that might be fraud, then they back down. So if there's fraud, if there's breach of contract, you need to hold tech executives liable for that. Scare them straight. And then I think you also need to require transparency, like we talked about. Content moderation practices transparency. When they make mistakes, they should admit it to the public, as well as algorithmic transparency. What are the impacts of these algorithms on users? And then data transparency, how are they collecting? Collecting this data, how are they using the data? Who are they sharing it with? When and for how long are they storing this data? There should be truth in lending, like there are in other sectors. So truth in dealing with data that is critical. And then I think other elements consist of that the government doesn't use these companies as agents to chill speech. So Jen Psaki should not be allowed to, in her official capacity. Go up to the White House podium and say, we're working with Facebook to get these certain accounts off of Facebook because they spew disinformation and then have Facebook comply less than a month later. No, this should absolutely be prohibited. And joint ventures with the CCP, like the ones Apple engages in to the tune of $275 billion, should also be prohibited. Americans should be given new ways to fight back, prompt and meaningful recourse, and they should be giving more user control and more privacy. That's sort of the gist of our policy ideas in a nutshell.
2: This issue of reforming section 230, which was originally created in a pre-internet world, can you walk us through what it is now and what you think it should be?
1: Of course. So section 230 refers to the section of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, where it basically shields these tech companies. It gives them immunity from civil liability for removing objectionable content or lascivious content. We'll just call it what it is, porn and child exploitation and whatnot. But there's a clause in it that says they can remove with immunity from civil liability content that's otherwise objectionable. And they've taken that to mean all sorts of things right the things that you and i consider mainstream conservatism like the new york post hunter biden laptop story that kind of thing we as americans can't sue them or we can try but we're gonna lose in a court because of section 230 and then as clarence thomas has said over the years the courts have interpreted this to involve a sweeping immunity so they've basically gone overboard i say tech companies were given an inch the purpose was arguably pretty noble these are the 26 words that created the internet, according to some scholars, but they've been given an inch and they've taken a mile. So it's time to, in our estimation at the Heritage Foundation, reform Section 230. And what you do is you say that we can strip immunity from tech companies if they censor based on political views or other views protected by the Constitution as clearly outlined in future legislation. So you have to basically say you don't get that freedom uh, from the people clamoring for recourse if you censor based on political views. You're going to be opened up to lawsuits if you censor as wantonly as you have been, especially based off of, you know, people just engaging in critical thinking on their platforms.
2: I was speaker when we passed this, and our interest at the time was helping get off the ground this revolution in capabilities. And we wanted to enable them, for example, to block child pornography. I don't think any of us at the time thought through the notion that it would become almost an anti-American kind of totalitarian tool that would begin to pick winners and losers based on ideology. I would strongly support reforming Section 230. You know, I had an interesting experience the other day. I wrote a good friend of mine, Herman Perchner, who runs the American Foreign Policy Council. And because I'd noticed that in Russia, there have been very significant letters and other outcries against Putin invading Ukraine. And I wrote and I said, wouldn't this kind of make Russia an authoritarian state where China is a totalitarian state? Because you couldn't imagine anybody in China doing the sort of things that people are getting away with in Russia. And he wrote back and said, that's right. He said, you still have independent centers of power that Putin actually can't take head on. And they do, in fact, limit him, whereas Xi would disappear you, and you just wouldn't exist. It's a fascinating difference, and it seems to me that, unfortunately, many of the elements of big government in this country, combining with elements of big business, come closer to tolerating and accepting the Xi Jinping totalitarian line, and that it's amazingly dangerous, because once somebody asserts the right to say, well, now, your ideas don't count. Then the next person can decide their ideas don't count. And pretty soon you're down to, you know, one person defining what we believe. I mean, do you worry about that kind of creeping totalitarianism?
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's why we titled the paper Combating Big Text Totalitarianism, because this was evocative of Rod Dreyer's piece, right, where he talks about soft totalitarianism in his book, Live Not By Lies, based off the famous Solzhenitsyn quote, right? One word of truth outweighs the whole world. Because right now, Americans are being forced to lie by these tech companies working hand in glove with the government. And that is what I'm worried about. That nod, the politicization of everything as totalitarianism, as companies fuse with the Biden administration and prevailing leftist ideologies that have sort of captured every institution, we're seeing the manifestation of this today. You can't say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman on Twitter without getting kicked off. Representative Jim Banks had this experience. Uh, Christian commentator Ali Bestucki had this experience. And this is also the line coming from the Biden administration. And I'll get more granular in terms of why we're saying this fusion of leftist ideology as propagated by the Biden administration and Democratic politicians writ large and tech companies matter. Because when Joe Biden in January Addresses a COVID lecture and says, I'm appealing to tech companies, you have to do more to get disinformation off your platforms. What the Surgeon General said in July, the day after Jen Psaki got up to the podium and said, We're working with Facebook to do more. Surgeon General said the same thing, said his office is also working with Facebook. These are agents of the government. DHS Secretary Mallorca said the same thing with regard to elections. So it's not just COVID misinformation or COVID related ideas, but it's question- questioning the election. It's asking for election integrity to be intensified. It's pervasive. Again, it's gender ideology. You can't talk about biological sex in a way that is truthful. And these tech companies are enforcers of what the Biden regime is saying is the only acceptable line of thought. You know, there's a reason why Ron DeSantis said that big tech is the censorship arm of the Democratic Party. And when Parler was kicked off by Apple, Apple, Google, and Amazon Web Services, which is the real story here, that was started by Michelle Obama talked about it, sitting Democratic politicians talked about it. So that pressure from the government, it absolutely matters when it comes to the policies and the practices enacted by these tech platforms. And it's bleeding over into companies beyond the big tech companies and social media to online fundraising, payment processors, email delivery services, internet service providers. It's every facet of your life, and that equals totalitarianism.
2: You know, it's very sobering to watch the Canadian government overreact to the truckers. An announcement yesterday that if you allowed the truckers to use one of your trucks, your company could lose its insurance, it could lose its license, the government could freeze its bank account. All of it, by the way, without going to court, without getting a judge, just the arbitrary decision of bureaucracies, which is very similar to the Chinese model, I think. I was surprised at how open and blatant, I always think of Canada as a sort of friendly country, and this is a level of ruthlessness. I don't know of any other Western country that has shown quite the willingness to get right into your personal life and destroy you. And that's what they were saying yesterday, is that basically we will destroy you unless you obey us.
1: Well, Newt, this should be extremely worrying because while Trudeau pulled the trigger first on the Emergencies Act, all of the underpinnings are here in America of the same kind of thing. It's normalizing the targeting of mainstream citizens with counterterrorism tools. So we saw this with the most recent Department of Homeland Security bulletin that said, you know, Americans that share misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation on social media are subject to be treated as terrorists. That should send a chill down everyone's spine. And we've seen it with the National School Board Association, with the letter they wrote. In- in tandem with the White House, to Merrick Garland that basically said, Parents who object to the teaching of critical race theory in their schools should be treated as domestic extremists. There's a couple other examples here, like the DOJ starting a domestic terrorism unit that looks at anti authority or anti government ideologies. And to me, you know, all classifying people who just maybe want to question where the government is going, some of these policies that we should be skeptical of, yet now we're going to be labeled terrorists. The Canadian government did it first but I think, alas, it is actually going to come here,
2: too. Yeah, it's almost like the elites all across the Western world are desperately trying to suppress the incorrigibles, the blue-collar workers, the people who don't automatically salute the new left-wing flag. And it's fascinating. As a historian, I find all of this kind of astonishing. I want to really thank you for joining me. I think your new report, Combating Big Text Totalitarianism, A Roadmap, is a must-read for everyone concerned about Big Tech's overreach and what we need to do to reform the system. We're going to include that in our show page. And I hope as you do further work that you'll come back and keep briefing us because this is going to be a very important and, I think, very rapidly changing battlefield. And what you're doing is in some ways more important for the future of freedom in America than anything you ever did in Afghanistan.
1: Thank you, sir. I'll come back anytime.
2: Thank you to my guest, Kara Frederick. You can read her report, Combating Big Text to Totalitarianism, A Roadmap, on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Newt's World.